If you've been enjoying this podcast over weeks or months or even years, I'd be so grateful if you could please leave us a five-star review so others can hear about the show. Thanks so much. Welcome to Grow, Cook, Eat, Arrange, the podcast of me, Sarah Raven, and a series of guests. But actually today, it's just me on my own. And that's because I want to chat about one of the things that's really interested me so much in the last definitely five years, but actually probably more like 10. And that's trying to make your spring bulbs as sustainable as they can possibly be i.e. that if you follow a few rules, you shouldn't need to be buying them every year at all. Now, I have lots of friends in Holland, in the Netherlands, and um, I've always found it, in a way, quite sad and rather challenging that they think of tulips in particular as annuals. I mean, they literally lift them out of their gardens or out of their pots and compost them if you're lucky or or bin them. But the reason for that is very, very clear and strong, which is the alarm about tulip fire and disease, but particularly the fungal disease, infecting their soil and so their gardens and so that they can't then plant tulips there the following spring. So I, I do completely get that. So that's perhaps the first thing that I'm going to touch on, which is as all of your tulips are coming up into flower, I want everyone to go outside and just check that none of them, particularly the ones that you've left from the previous year, haven't got what's called tulip blight. And how you'll tell is it looks like they've been in a hailstorm and the leaves are really, they've got sort of almost like pop marks over them. And then you'll see little similar, smaller marks, sort of, you know, like almost like burns over the petals. And they won't be everywhere. You'll just see that they'll start with maybe four or five. And and then you'll, if you wait a couple of days, there'll be more. Now that I'm afraid. And oh, and also the growth comes up looking a bit, just not sort of straight and perky and green, a bit kind of gnarled. Now that I'm afraid is almost certainly tulip fire. And you need to get a really good spade or a, or a long-handled trowel and get that out. And I'm afraid you do need to either bag that or burn it or whatever. You need to get rid of it because you don't want that mould, which is fungus, going into your compost heap. So that you need to get rid of. But what we have found this spring is we, we, we got the odd one, we took them out, but we are trying a preventative measure over the whole garden, wherever we've got tulips, which is an organic um, mix, which we've had huge success with on our ranunculus in our greenhouse. And ranunculus famously are rather mildew prone, particularly in a dry, hot spring, which hopefully we're all going to get a few dry, hot days coming up. Mildew can, can really take hold. And we have had huge success in the greenhouse with the mix I'm going to tell you about, which is bicarbonate of soda diluted in water and then a drop literally or two or three drops of sunflower oil and two or three drops of washing up liquid. 
and the oil and the soap help the bicarb stick to the leaves. And we have found this hugely successful. But I'll put the recipe in the podcast notes and it'll be on the website if you if you want to try it. And then we should all confer as to whether we've had success uh, with that really nice, homemade, simple, organic fungal treatment rather than having to use a chemical like Bordeaux mixture or something even stronger, which we just wouldn't use here anymore because unfortunately... The stronger it is, of course, the more likely it is to kill the mycorrhizae, which are the fungal organisms in the soil, which you want for a healthy soil. And so, you know, it's not just sort of sanctimonious organic religion. It's genuinely that those microorganisms in the soil will help keep your soil healthy and your plants healthy with it. And so you don't want to spray anything onto your soil that is going to affect their health. So, Anyway, that, that's the sort of negative starting point, but I want to move on to the positive now, which is to get really good value from your bulbs this spring and then also, you know, on to next spring and the following spring and the following spring. What I would advise is a few things. So the first is variety. So let's start with families to begin with. So we find hyacinths, alliums, and most of all, Narcissus, hugely and utterly and totally reliably perennial. So we are really very obsessed, particularly by Narcissus here, and put more in every year, and every year they get better. But let's just start with hyacinths first. So if you've got any hyacinths that you forced from earlier in the year, and perhaps, well, I hope you didn't chuck them, you dried them off, plant them out now, and plant them at the same depth. Even if they've got leaves on, plant them out at the same depth that they were in the soil in the pot and just find them somewhere in the sun, maybe on the edge of a path so they get a good baking. And what we find with hyacinths here that we've done that with over the years is that we now are able to pick vases and vases and vases from sort of the middle of March till the middle of April and yet we haven't planted any hyacinths straight into the garden. So there are, those are all the ones that have come from pots in the house and that have gone out into the garden. And they have naturalized. And how you tell whether a bulb is naturalized, and this applies across all varieties, so whether hyacinths, alliums, narcissus, or tulips, how you tell is that you will get almost, you know, it's kind of obvious really, it, it's sort of common sense in a way, which is you get this little clump. And yet, you know, you wouldn't have planted six or seven bulbs so close to each other. And that's because the mother bulb has given her energy to bulbils around the base plate, all under the soil. And so what then happens is that the mother may be a little bit stunted. She, she'll probably still flower. And we find with hyacinths particularly, she does definitely still flower and, and with tulips too. But around the outside of her, there's then children and actually often grandchildren. And so the hyacinth from, let's say, 2020 makes babies in 2021 and also more babies in 2022 than the ones from 2021 also make babies in 2023. Do you see what I mean? So you get into this virtuous circle of almost bulbs naturalizing, basically, and having just had a walk around the garden lots of hyacinths have done that here. So whereas they were dotty bulbs when they were put out, they're now big drifts. 
and it looks so much prettier and more natural. And I'm actually going to start introducing them into our orchard and see how they do because actually it knocks the chunkiness back of a garden hyacinth. So they look much more delicate and, and much more widely spaced in the flower spire. So the individual florets and they're shorter and, and they're it, to my eye prettier. I mean, there's the variety called Anastasia, which I've always been crazy about, which looks like a hybrid between a bluebell and hyacinth. And so they're really delicate. But these turn almost into that and, and they look lovely both in the garden and the vase. Whereas the brand new planting of them, I think can be a bit like feather dusters. They can be a little bit strong. Anyway, so those are hyacinths. Alliums obviously are the last to flower, but I'm going to talk about them next because what we find with them also is that you get exactly the same that I explained uh, with the different years of new babies being formed. And we find alliums here that we plant with grit in the bottom of the holes have naturalized and have done really well. So for instance, I've got Allium Christophii that I planted here 28 years ago in a particular place in what was then a herb garden. It's The garden itself has changed its raison d'etre many times over those years, but yet that allium is still there. So they're really, really good value, incredibly easy to perennialize. Narcissus are the same. And I first realized this in a house that I holiday on the west coast of Scotland. And because traditionally I've been there in school holidays, either mine or then my children's, I haven't been there for years in May. And last May I went and the whole house was surrounded by this unbelievably lovely, highly scented double narcissus called Narcissus poeticus alba planus, which flowers in May, just like the classic pheasant's eye, with the same beautiful fragrance. And uh, we found records in the gardening journals of place up there called Artornish, where they had probably been planted in a wall garden there in kind of 1850, 1860, and isn't that incredible? So, you know, that's that's just amazing, you know, 170 years of those same bulbs coming up in the same place. They're hammered by sheep, they're hammered by deer, but they're not because actually, and we've found this with Narcissus in our hen run, animals don't eat them. So they're incredibly good for naturalizing, even in quite wild places. And that's why, of course, they're suitable and have been planted traditionally in big orchards, even when they're being grazed by sheep underneath. And that's an incredibly lovely romantic sight in this part of the world when the blossom is out on the trees, the narcissus are flaring away and you've got the puffy pom-poms of the sheep in there as well. It's sort of a vision of Arcadia, really. So narcissus, everyone is perennial, but the nearer the species you go in our experience here, like any with the Tazetta genes, which are the multi-headed, highly scented varieties, or the Narcissus poeticus, they've done particularly well here. And we have a bank which hides our polytunnels that I made 25 years ago when I put up the polytunnels first. And there I planted 50 Narcissus actea bulbs. And now there are about 5,000. And so I, again, can go out there and pick to my heart's content without any guilt, picking one in 20 heads so it doesn't affect the overall view, the overall beauty of that bank. And yet I've got on the table a huge guiltless vase of the most incredibly powerfully scented and delicious Narcissus. So the most important family in a way in terms of sustainability are the tulips. 
because of this thing that really most of our parks or perhaps even all of our parks and you know I'm afraid lots of public gardens literally will lift their tulips and and bin them and we're really trying to research how we can avoid doing that here in the garden at Perch Hill and I've got three really important things that I think I need to sort of pass on to you that have resulted in in great success with perennializing but one does have to be wary of tulip fire so that's why the bicarb recipe is important. So let's start with the tips for how to make tulips super sustainable. And the first is variety. And if you've been getting our catalogue for years, you'll know I bang on about the Viridiflora group, the green flashed flowered group as being super perennial. Well, they are. And so things like spring green, green lamb, which is the, so spring green is the is the cream, so ivory and green. Greenland is the pink and green. Artist is the orange and green. Golden artist is the yellow, orange and green. And then there's a fabulous new one that we all fell in love with in the trials here last year called marmalade, or in fact, orange marmalade. So those are all super perennial. And we've put orange marmalade in our rhubarb bed because uh, it, they'll take dappled shade, which is where the rhubarb are, and hopefully they will have completely perennialized there. So we'll go on being able to look and pick some marmalade viridiflora tulips from for now for 10 or 20 years, all going well. So variety is one thing. So viridiflora is definitely Darwin hybrids, are the others. So those are the really large-headed ones that look almost like ostrich eggs. And I'm very, very keen on ivory floridale because it does look like an ostrich egg. But there are quite a few of those. The Impression series are in that group and they give you a very lovely, early, massive, great bunch of flowers. And they, again, have been coming up in the garden here for about 10 years. Then there are, of course, the species, which are the ones traditionally you put in your grass, perhaps like Turkestanica or, you know, there are, there are, there are lots actually. Any of the pre-stands variety like Shogun, we have those in our grass. But those are really good for perennializing. So the species varieties. And then we also find the emperor series. So like orange emperor, apricot emperor, and actually white emperor, which is purissima, in fact. It, it also, we find it exceptionally perennial here. So those are all really, really reliable. And then there are a few odd ones, like we find ballerina, Sarah Raven, which are both in the lily flag group, black parrot, mistress mystic, they're all really reliably perennial here. So that's variety. The second thing is how deep you plant them. And this is certainly something that we found important. And we're on heavy clay, but we do use one of those bulb planters that have a sort of spades handle on it, you know, so that you don't have to bend over and break your back the whole time when you're planting them. And also it gives you a good depth to get them down to. I mean, at least four inches if you use one of those bulb planters. And ideally, you might even get a little bit deeper. And what we find is that that really helps with perenniality. And I think the reason is that they don't get so hot. And when a tulip gets hot, which you'll see in a pot, is it is given the impetus to reproduce. So you get bulbil formation. Whereas if you plant them deep, they're kept cooler. They don't then reproduce and they will not naturalize, but they will more 
readily perennialize, i.e. they'll come back year after year after year. And gradually, as I say, they will then naturalize and you will get bulbils. So that's the second thing. Depth of planting to keep them cool is a good idea. And the third thing, and perhaps, well, one from final thing, is where you plant them. Now, this is a thing that we've done accidental research on. I can't claim that any of this was particularly intentional, but it's about observation. And what we found is that if you put them in a really unpromising place, but that it gets a good baking. So for instance, we have an old, very old, must I mean, it was here when we came here, privet hedge. And we have a really old, lovely old apple tree also here when we came here. And we've planted bulbs on the south side of the hedge and under the apple tree. And just because we planted them there, not, not because of any experiment. And what we found in both those situations is that the bulbs that aren't particularly perennializing varieties have completely perennialized. And I think the reason is, is that under the privet hedge and under the apple tree, it's absolutely baked dry. It's a desert and it's incredibly impoverished in organic matter because the apple tree and the privet hedge have used all the goodness from the soil over the years and they get a really, really good baking in those sites and situations. And I remember going on a wildflower trip with Adam, my now husband, 30 odd years ago, and we went to Crete up into the mountains to look for a variety of wild tulip called Tulipa sexatilis. And we indeed found it often literally in the top of boulders where there was a tiny bit of organic matter that had collected from a bit of moss or whatever, but honestly, minuscule amount. So no goodness in the soil at all, not in the soil, in a boulder. And of course, drenched with rain in the winter in Crete. It's very, very wet in the mountains, but baked, hot, parched all the way through from the middle of spring until the rains start again in the autumn. And that's exactly, so in nature, wild tulips, that's where they live and grow and thrive and reproduce. And that is, of course, not surprisingly, where they seem to do the same in our gardens. So don't give them a sort of well-fed, you know, tons of organic matter, you know, your, your prime place in your borders, give them a really skanky old place that, that really not much else is going to grow and you will then perennialize your bulbs. The final thing too, actually, in everything you need to know about perennializing bulbs is how you prevent squirrels. And I'm afraid to say perhaps rats and mice eating your bulbs when you plant them in the autumn. Again, we've done lots of trialing and experimenting with this here because it breaks our hearts, all of our, any gardener's hearts, that you've spent all this money and time buying these bulbs, you put them in, you go out again on the Monday morning and some bleeding thing has dug them up and eaten them. And we have found, we've tried everything. So we've tried chicken wire, doesn't look very nice, quite expensive, not ideal in my view. We've tried old sort of grills from, from, from an old oven here, very effective, quite ugly. We have tried Chili flakes used to work here, stopped working as squirrel populations increased. But this year we've had huge success with pruning our roses in October and November as they go into dormancy. And every single rose stem, rather than putting them through a shredder and onto the compost heap, we store them. We cut them into little short sort of 
45 centimeter sections and we scatter those over all of our pots. So we literally store them in a sort of crane bag and don't get rid of any of them and use them as a spiky top layer over the top of all our pots. And if we're planting into the borders, we put bigger, um, longer sections of them. And it's been a triumph. It's been a huge success. Final thing with narcissus, don't tie them in those knots. Literally just let them die back, let everything die back, let the leaves photosynthesize as long as possible and ban the ride-on mower until at least the end of May if you've got narcissus in grass. You do not want to tidy them up before that because that is when you get blind bulbs. So hopefully that is kind of chapter and verse of everything I've learned over the last 30 years about making better value and our bulbs more sustainable. Well, I hope you found that interesting grow cookie to range with me on my own on the perenniality of bulbs, but particularly tulips. And next week, I'm actually going to be on my own again because I wanted to give you the tips as we're moving from spring into summer that I have really learnt over the last 30 years to make food that I harvest from the garden here at this time of year, mainly salads and herbs, and also flowers to last as long as possible to taste best, look best, and last as long as possible. So it's harvesting techniques a la Sarah Raven. You can find more information, photos, and advice sheets on all the plants and recipes we talk about on this podcast by heading to the show notes or at sarahraven.com forward slash podcast.